Okay, we're going to let the uh, young people be dismissed. And as they do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. 1 Samuel, chapter 17. You might this morning ask why we have uh, taken a detour and our study of God's Word from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And I think that's a fair question. And I want to try to answer that for you real quick as we begin today. Um, Why do a series on bravery? Why do a series on bravery, on courage? And I have a couple of reasons for... uh, Can someone turn on the lights, by the way? I saw someone back there. I thought they were turning on the lights. Sorry. I just need proof that you're really here. Okay, good. Thank you, Daryl. Um, so I, I, have, I have three responses I came up with actually this morning as I was sitting at my desk. Why are we doing a series on bravery? Uh, one is, uh, or could be, uh, harassing emails about my jogging routine. Um, I am sure that most of them are related to my age. A week ago, I did a foolish thing and went out. Remember the snowstorm we had on Tuesday like a week ago? I'm out running in that. Um, But I made the mistake of telling some of the young adults in our church about that who I thought I could trust. (laughs) I told them about it in an email, and this is the response I got. You know who you are. You wrote me this email. Your farcical exercise routine, just think about that right there, is just too much for me right now. I most certainly did not run on that day. I did Taibo, ultimate boot camp instead, which is basically made for machines, not human beings. It was very intense and several times I wanted to throw my television out the window. Yesterday I get an email from the same person. Hope your week went well. I went running today. In the rain. So did C, the other person involved in this email. I suppose you were all snuggled up in your house with 800 candles by your side, watching it through the window saying, oh, how terrible weather we're having. I'd never be caught dead in this. (laughs) Meanwhile, we are busy busy being exercise machines. It's okay though, PT. We can't all be as dedicated as Mr. and Mrs. C and MC. Or I could be preaching on bravery because uh, I think it was this summer I made the mistake of going jogging with my future son-in-law who when asked about what it was like to jog with PT gave this response. Kind of like running with a dinosaur. (laughs) You know, my response to that is Dan Slack over here. That's what I want to say. The young people in our church need to be reminded that I will soon be three times their age. And I'm still running. Another reason I could give you is this. Uh, How many of you have read the next like 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 11? Why don't you go read that and then you wonder why I'm in a stall mode in our series on 1 Corinthians. One day we're going to give it a shot. So be prepared because I've had lots of time to think about and prepare. But if I was to say the real reason for why we need to talk about being brave, 
I would have to argue from this text that the reason to work at being brave for God, the biblical just, biblically justifiable reason is not my happiness, it's not my contentment, it is only and always will be that the glory of God Himself is at stake when we are weak and lack courage as His children. The real reason I'm preaching this series is because I know what it is to lack courage when I should be brave. And I make an assumption that there are probably people within our church community who know what it is to experience a failure of courage, a lack of bravery. Because as one writer has said, every Christian is either in a trial, going into one, or coming out of one. All of us. In this world, Jesus said, you will face trouble. He used the word thlipsis, uh, which means persecution, pressure that will come against you and cause or create in you a lack of bravery or a tendency to be weak. The question I want to ask this morning, based on the story of David and Goliath, is this question, how do I cultivate brave faith in the face of trials that glorifies God? How do I, in my situation, the thing that I fear, how do I, in that situation, cultivate a brave faith that when people see it, they don't ask about the person exercising the faith. They know it's not rooted in them. They ask, who is behind that person? What makes them, in the face of situations that usually kill courage, what makes them so brave? I don't want to deal with the story of David and Goliath from the perspective of how you can have a better life now. That would do a disservice to this text. If I made this text about David and how God comes to the aid of his children and takes care of all our problems, I would destroy this story. This story is not about us. This story is about God. And it's about how a young man knew that life was about the glory of God and knew that the greatest joy in life would be achieved when he lived flat out and only to glorify the God who had changed his life. And so this morning, my desire is to help us to become brave for the glory of God, not so that we can have less anxiety in our life, not so that we can overcome our trials, but so that God in life or death, as Paul said, might be glorified in the midst of our trials that we may or may not escape, that may or may not end the way we want them to end. But what we as God's children should be profoundly concerned with is that God be seen as the Creator of heaven and earth, and as the Savior of our souls, who fills us with bravery, that people look at and say, that is not naturally occurring in humanity. That has to be God. So this morning, I just wanted to jump into this text, and I'm just going to give you five answers to the question, how do I cultivate brave faith that glorifies the one who deserves to be the famous one as we so beautifully sang this morning. This is the story that is so familiar in Scripture, isn't it? The story of David and Goliath when the Philistines and the Israelites came to a valley 
uh, called Elah and drew up battle lines. And the picture simply is this. On one side of the valley is an encampment. It is the Israelites. On the other side of that valley of Elah is an encampment, the the Philistines. I want to say the Palestinians. The Philistines. So you have this very interesting scenario. And it happens to be that David's brothers are involved in this battle. And that's, in a sense, how he ends up in this story about bravery. David is sent by his father to take food to his brothers because the battle that they're engaged in is lasting over 40 days. Things aren't going well. In fact, it's a complete stalemate. Day to day, the same thing happens. The same challenge is given. The same failure of courage occurs. One of the lessons that emerges out of this text first is this. God's children will often face impossible circumstances. This is, in David's life, one illustration of the impossible, difficult circumstances that God's children will face. Impossible meaning can't be done or a situation or circumstance that is beyond personal resources. When someone comes to me in a counseling setting and says, Pastor Hoff, I can't stay in this marriage any longer. It is impossible. Okay? I say to them, you know what? A lot of people face circumstances that to them appear to be irreversible, beyond their resources. God's children face circumstances like this. Israel face circumstances like that. The main issue is a man named Goliath. And I just know that the text goes on for a few verses describing who he is. And I just want to... Verses 4 through 7, narrow this down. Roger's already read it for us. Verses 4 through 7. What is the opponent that Israel is facing that is causing a failure of bravery as they face an, an apparently impossible set of circumstances? Who is Goliath? He is, as the text says, a champion. He's the guy that's got the long list of pins that talk about his accomplishments, his unique capacities as a seasoned warrior. This text just gives us a couple hints as to how formidable Goliath is. His height is nine foot plus. Now give me your honest reaction to that statement. What's your honest reaction to that statement? Come on, say it. Okay, yikes is a good one. Okay, more biblically accurate. Okay, but what, what is it? What do you tend to think? People aren't that tall. Okay, now so... To answer that question, I know it's coming into your mind. In 1940, a man named Robert Waldo, who was 8 foot 11 inches tall, died. 8 foot 11 inches tall. Okay, so I just want to say, people look at this text, you know, it's obviously, um, this is a propaganda story to help encourage the people of Israel. Okay, that's what we tend to think. Because there couldn't be someone 9 foot plus tall. Okay? So I just want to say that there are people that have come close to that height. He is a man who is covered in armor. And if you've ever looked at ancient armory, you know that armor became an art form to intimidate, to send a message. There's a reason that state troopers in the state of New Jersey dress like they do. Why they look so sharp and authoritative. But they don't dress like Tim Hoff does during the week. Okay, They're about respect for the position that they have. And when you see them, there's part of you that kind of comes to the ready. You demonstrate respect. That's the way it was when Goliath marched onto the battle and gave his challenge 
to Israel, he was fearsome in appearance. Nine foot plus tall, a bronze helmet, scale armor that weighed about 125 pounds. Jake, how much do you weigh? Oh, you're getting heavy. Rachel, how much do you weigh? Oh, wait, that's a girl. Sorry. All right, I'm stuck. Okay, let, let's go on, okay? I wanted to say, but I can't. I can't. Now you're wondering what I'm thinking, but I can't say it. Scale armor, 125-pound jacket that would usually go down to the knees. Scale armor meaning just pieces of brass attached to this netting. Now the purpose of it was to stop anything that came against him. Just imagine a 125-pound piece of armor that he's wearing. On his legs, the text tells us, if you're looking at this, that he is brass covering his shins, his uh, shin guards as in what soccer players wear. His spear was as thick as a weaver's beam, thick enough to hold a head that weighed 15 pounds. 15 pounds. Two weeks ago, I held in my hand a desert eagle. It's the biggest handgun made. It's a 50 caliber pistol. Okay, my nephew just thought I needed to know that he bought this gun. Like, good night. 50 caliber. I mean, you see that gun, you come to the attention. When Israel heard the challenge of Goliath and saw the armor that he was wearing, the spear that he carried, and then, I just love this little sidebar. Oh, and his shield bearer went ahead of him carrying his shield. What kind of shield is that? When I watch period movies, I see the guys holding their shield, but he is so tall that to protect his body, he needs someone to carry his shield into battle. It's that massive. So what a statement Goliath would make as he marched out onto the field. And all I'm saying is this. That when, you, when you uncover this story and you realize that God in His Word has devoted uh, four verses to describing... It doesn't say just a real big giant named Goliath who's a champion. It doesn't say that. It gives you the details so you understand how impossible this situation looked to every Israeli soldier. This is the reason that King Saul, who stood a head and shoulder above everybody else in Israel, failed to answer the call. He focused on the human plane. He saw the massive size of the opposition and simply would not take the risk and did not want to be embarrassed. And so bravery in Saul's life falls down. And also you have this emotional challenge that comes from Saul. This is what's happening every day. Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and draw up and, and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Don't you have God behind you? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subject. This is a winner-takes-all challenge. This is actually a very juicy challenge. If you could win a battle... And have all the opposition become your servants by killing one man. That's not something that should cause fear. That's an opportunity. Israel fails to pass the test. This goes on for 40 days. That is the impossible situation Israel finds themselves in. The Philistines would rather not battle. They'd rather have them take on their champion. And so they lay down the challenge. It it's an impossible circumstance from a human perspective. Number two, God's children may respond improperly to impossible circumstances. So, he marches out onto the field. The response of Israel as a nation and to their king is an abysmal failure. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul 
head and shoulder above all the Israelites, led the retreat because they were dismayed and terrified. There was for them a complete collapse of courage and bravery when there should have been courage and bravery that glorified God. They fell down. They fell down. Sometimes, friends, we, because of persistent opposition, this standoff lasts 40 days. 40 days they've been doing this. 40 days they give out the battle cry. Look at verse 20. Because this to me is, is, is fascinating. Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed him. This is when his father sends him to bring food for his brothers because what's going on in the battle? It's taken so long. There were no cell phones. And Daryl Khan can confirm that for us, okay, as a Verizon employee. He reached camp as the army was going out to battle positions, shouting a war cry. I read that and I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. After doing this for 40 days, line up, shout the war cry, we're ready to rah, you know. And then the Goliath shows up and what happens? Verse 11 tells us for 40 days, in dismay and terror, Saul leads a retreat. This is going on for 40 days. Why? Because it is possible that the children of God, when they face God-sized circumstances, will experience a complete catastrophic failure of courage. I would say that this army is in complete dismay and they are not, as a group, encouraged by the behavior of their king. The result is an across-the-board failure of courage. Now verses 12 through 15, 17 through 20, tell us about David coming to the battle line. And the third point that I want to touch base on is this. God sovereignly gives us opportunities to be brave for His glory. David has already been contacted by Samuel. The, the behind-the-scenes story is this. Saul has disobeyed God so profoundly and has embarrassed God Himself and de-godded God so profoundly that Samuel, the prophet, has already anointed David to become king of Israel. Saul is a man who is going down. And God's decision to put Saul aside is completely justifiable. This is predictable. That Saul would fail in bravery and courage was predictable. And what is God doing behind the scenes? God is cultivating. God is growing. God is mentoring a brave young man who is the least likely opponent for Goliath. But he's shaping and cultivating his life so that this young man can be God's man and demonstrate bravery and courage that will bring glory and honor to God. That man is brought into this set of circumstances. I want to argue from the text, sovereignly, he is given an opportunity to be brave for the glory of God. Early in the morning, verse 20, David left the flock with the shepherd. He loaded up and he set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army. So he gets there perchance, just as the army is going out to their battle positions and they are shouting the war cry. Now, if you're a young man, if you're 18, 19 years old, dad has sent you to take food to your brothers and when you get there, you hear there's action. How are you feeling? Oh, this is going to be amazing. And David naively thinks that the people of God will be brave. That they will have courage. 
He feels like he's going to see action. But what he's going to see to him is horrifying. Verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, okay, so he gets there by the sovereign timing of God. While he's there, he's on the front lines because that's where his brothers happen to be at this moment. And he has a first-hand encounter with this champion named Goliath. As he was talking with them, verse 23, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his line. So both sides line up and then Goliath steps out into the middle and says, let's rumble. David hears this. He steps out from his lines, shouts the usual defiance, the predictable rant that he's been getting away with stating against God and his army. And David heard it. I just love that statement. David heard it. Everybody else had heard it, but David now hears it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. And can you imagine David? Can you just imagine David? Looking at King Saul and saying, what, what, what gives here? You're going to let him get away with that? He's defying the ranks of Israel, the people of God. He's standing in opposition to the plan of God. You're going to let him get away with that? And God plants a seed in the heart of David. He's starting to nurture it. He planted that seed when he allowed David to kill the lion, when he allowed him to kill the bear. David starts thinking, you didn't let him get away with that? And in, in, in just... He has to be completely perplexed by this situation. If you look back to verse 12 of this chapter, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. And the text goes on to tell us then, in verse 14, David was the youngest. He's got three older brothers who are seasoned warriors who are out there to fight for the glory of God. And he begins to get aggravated by the fact that they're running from Goliath. He receives a burden from God. This shouldn't be this way. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel, the people of God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Think about that. David's thinking, you have got to be kidding me. You guys have been listening to this for 40 days and no one has done anything? He is mystified. He is mystified that they would take this position in the face of a man who is arrogant and degrading towards his God. God is giving him an opportunity by his sovereign plan to be brave for the glory of God. But he has a problem. He, he has issues. He's saying, I'm willing, but here's what he's going to do. He's going to get hammered. Why? He's the youngest son. Verse 28. David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Do you get it? David, you're just a menial shepherd. You watch sheep, the, that few sheep. Who did you leave them with, David? Since the sarcasm and the mockery? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, 
If I'm David, I'm thinking, you know what? I have to confess. As a young teenager, I'm, I'm excited by the potential for action, but I am dismayed by the lack of bravery and courage on the part of the people of God. Everybody else had seen the same thing. When David saw it, he knew that something had to be done that would bring glory to God. Why does David take this risk? Why does he go against, verse 33, the conventional wisdom of Saul? Here's what Saul says. Saul hears that David is curious about this battle. Sounds like he wants to take him on. So Saul, King Saul, head and shoulder above everybody else, therefore probably towering over David, calls David in for a personal audience. David says to him, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Here's what I would expect. I would expect that Saul would just have his jaw drop to the floor. That's what I would expect. And say, you know what, David? I can't let you go fight the battle I should fight. Thank you for calling me on the carpet. And may God help us. That's the logical conclusion. But Saul is so far gone because of his sin, the Bible tells us that the presence of God has been taken away from him. He is a man alone. He is a man who has lived in persistent disobedience to God. He was called when he thought himself a small, insignificant man. Later Samuel will say to him, Saul, didn't God call you when you were little in your own eyes? when you knew you couldn't do it without His help? Isn't that when He set His call upon your life and chose you to do great things for His glory? Isn't that when God called you? You would think that would come back to Saul. And he would say, God, whether by life or by death, I've got to go out there and defend your glory. This young man wants to go out and fight this seasoned champion who is clad in armor that artfully makes him a formidable opponent. Impossible to defeat alone. But David says, don't be afraid. You think to yourself, got to be kidding me. How we can be so far gone in our fear that we forget. And then you're asking this question, why does David take this risk? Why? And I think the answer is found in verses 34 and 35. Saul's like, you've got to be kidding me. You want to go and fight him? You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight with him. You are only a boy. Okay, which I think is one of the most profound statements in this text. You're only a boy. His brothers are saying, you're just an idiot. You're an embarrassment to the family. But Saul gets it. David, you're not a seasoned warrior. He's a champion. You're just a boy. Folks, don't let anybody, don't let anybody downplay the effect that you can have for the glory of God in the kingdom of God. David was like, I don't hear this. I do not hear this. He doubts the doubt and the doubter. Why? Because he's sensing what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God for a task that he knows is going to glorify God. And what he does is he starts thinking back into his life when he has faced great challenges and come through in a way that glorifies the God who strengthens him. But David said to Saul, verse 34, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. Think about that. That wasn't okay with me. I wasn't good with that. I went after it. Notice what he says. 
I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when he turned on me, I seized him by his hair and I struck it and I killed it. What is David remembering? That once he was filled with the power of the Spirit of God, God sovereignly protected his life in the most impossible circumstances. I read that story and I said, okay, I'm starting to doubt that. And David's saying, no, that's why I'm willing to go fight this Goliath, this Philistine who mocks God. Because I've experienced in my life the power of God. Friends, if you are wrestling with a failure of bravery and courage, remember what God has done in your life. Remember how He rescued you from your sin. If you were saved young, and I think of this often, God, what did you save me from? Where would my life be apart from your grace today? Remember that at six years old, my parents took me to a church where I would hear the gospel of Christ. And God changed my heart. Remember along the way how He's met your needs and been faithful to you and confront your lack of bravery. But you have to be able to remember what God has done in your life. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I pity the man who has none of them, meaning experiences of the power of God. And I pity yet more the man who having had them is now afraid to risk all for his Lord. What is Spurgeon saying? He's saying the greatest life isn't hiding from the impossible circumstances. It's found in going in there knowing I don't have the capacity for this. The intriguing part of this story to me is David's absolute confidence. Unabashed, unashamed, naive confidence. He says, I'll go out there, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. I'm going to stack his head on top of the, the lion and the bear. And then I think about this. David gets out onto the battlefield. The lines are drawn up. Goliath's standing there with the challenge. And David's walking out, thinking to himself, who am I? What am I doing out here? Just a boy. Just a boy. That's the irony that secures the glory of God when you remember who you are and who you would be without God. That's who you are. And when you're empowered by the Spirit and power of God, that's who you are in God's strength. And David experiences this profound influx of courage. He is the man who has the experiences of God's grace and having had them is not afraid to risk all for his Lord. Do you see the difference? Folks, look. Saul saw God work. He knew what it was to be filled with the Spirit of God and conquer armies for the glory of God. Saul knew that, but he forgot. We need to remember that God sovereignly brings us into circumstances where He wants to display His glory through our bravery and trust in His power. But when I read this, I, I thought of this. Without the first time experience of God's power, you don't have anything to remember. So some of us today probably need to go out and face the Goliath, the impossible circumstance that God has allowed to come into our life so we have something to recall. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never trusted the grace of God. You've never experienced a true, heartfelt transformation by the power of the Spirit of God. 
Spurgeon said, I pity that person who doesn't know what it is to taste the power of God. I pity the person, Spurgeon says, who experiences a lack of courage and bravery and runs and never experiences what it is to be born on the wings of an eagle and to experience the power of God. David comes to the next challenge. This is part of life. And David says, I remember, King, when God helped me. I don't lack bravery because I make it a habit of remembering and singing of the exploits and power of God in my life. Number four, Christian bravery is motivated by the glory of God. Folks, please, I believe this is the heart of this text. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace and who defies the armies of Israel. What will be done for him? Because David is already beginning to bend towards a mission to secure the glory of God. He is feeling bravery because he sees God being belittled and discredited as to his authority and power. He sees King Saul sitting there in abject fear. And I think what David is saying to King Saul, I am not going there. I refuse to to cower in fear when I serve a great God. And by the way, it's not about me, it's about God. And so he steps out to live, I believe, a life of worship. Verse 36 and 37. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will become like one of them. Why, David? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. But folks, that should be the bottom line for our life. You know when you need to be brave? Whenever circumstances threaten to belittle and de-God the glory of God Himself. That's when we should stand. Not because we want a better life now. It's not the Christian experience. It's about how can God be most glorified in this circumstance, this struggle that I am facing today. David is deeply bothered that no one is stepping out. But he is confident that God, his God, will deliver him. The Lord, verse 37, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You know, when David looks back to the lion and the bear thing, he doesn't look at his hands and say, whoa, you are one incredible man. David doesn't go home and look in the mirror and say, you are the man. You killed the bear. You killed the lion. You know what David says? God did that. And God's going to do it again. He's going to act on behalf of brave Christians to achieve His glory through them. And when He does it through them, they have the greatest privilege on planet Earth to be the people of God, living in the power of God for the glory of God. The last point, I'll just read this to you real quick, is number five. Christian bravery is rooted in confidence in the power of God in impossible circumstances. Christian bravery is rooted in confidence in the power of God. And when we are confident in the power of God, we achieve the glory of God. Folks, you know the rest of the story. David goes out. He puts a stone in that sling. He throws it. He strikes Goliath at the only place of vulnerability. Right here. 
The word of God tells us that the stone sunk in and, Saul, and, and, and Goliath was defeated. And Israel experienced victory. And I love the verse that draws this down to a conclusion. David goes out, Goliath despises him. He says, what are you? Who, who am I? Am I a dog? You are but a boy. Goliath saw this as a mockery. And the text says he despised him. Can I suggest this? None of us at that moment would want to trade places with David, would we? Saul looks at him and says, what am I, a dog? You've got to be kidding me. Come here, I'm going to tear your flesh apart and feed you to the birds out of my hands. That's the picture. Belittling. David, David's like, oh man, what have I gotten into? What am I doing out here? He relies on God. love what he says. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. You come with conventional weaponry. And by the way, King Saul tried to give me his armor, but I didn't want it because I don't need it. I don't need it. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel that you have defied. Do you see what the bent of David? What's the bent? Goliath, you have a problem. You defied God himself. And now God is going to defy you. And he's going to do it in a way that makes it very clear that this was about God and not about David. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. Just think of this. David's just shaking this day. The Lord is going to hand you over to me. And I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And Goliath said, Oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. Imagine Goliath's response to that. Not even recorded. doesn't need to be. The verse that encourages my heart is verse 50. So David, just a boy. Okay? Just David, just a boy. Triumphed over the Philistine with a stone and a sling. Now what do you do? Take stone and a sling and just a boy. And contrast it with verses 4 through 7 where you look at the impossible circumstance. And then you say to yourself, what circumstance in my life is like that? I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. I'm just a young person. What am I compared to this impossible circumstance? You are everything in the power of God. And you will experience the power of God when what you live for is His glory. A God-glorifying life is lived by brave Christians who want to see God glorified above all circumstances that they face, above all financial calamities, above all sicknesses, above all death. A God-glorifying life is lived by brave Christians who want to see God glorified more than anything else that they want to see in their life. And when you live that kind of life, you will catch the eye of powerful people King Saul, as David's going out to do what he should be doing, you know what King Saul says? Whose son is this? I'm thinking to myself, Saul, you're like a total idiot. Oh, whose son is this? He's curious about the courage. What kind of father raised a son like that? What kind of dad instilled in his son a desire for the glory of God? May God help us. When we respond to the impossible with faith, we encourage the bravery of others. I wouldn't want to take David's face before Goliath is killed, but I can tell you this. 
I would love to be in David's place when Goliath receives a singular message from David. One stone. One stone in the hand of God did the impossible. Because when David was challenged, he responded with God-glorifying bravery. If you don't know Christ this morning, you have an opponent that wants to take you down. He can only be defeated through the cross of Christ. And when He defeats your sin and gives you the gift of righteousness, your life will be changed for the glory of God forever. And you can be a brave Christian for His glory. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we conclude,